I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to the fifth special episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, not looking at lives, but something even more interesting, possibly, the Northern Renaissance. Yep. In fact, I've called it the Northern Ren- Rena- Renaissance, we say. So Renaissance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so people have a choice. The Northern Renaissance in 10 objects. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I st- yeah, I started with the intention of covering all the arts. And I quickly realised we'd be looking at a mini-series. And then you mentioned fashion as well. <laughs> yes. So I've decided to stick to the visual arts. And I've shamelessly stolen the format from Neil McGregor and his History of the World in 100 Objects. Have you ever heard nice. that? Nice. Yes, I have. Yeah. But we've got the History of the Northern Renaissance in 10 objects. So it'll be considerably shorter. And I've listed them chronologically from 1400 to 1567. So we can see the progress of artistic technique. Okay. I didn't think it was possible to pinpoint a date for the start of the Northern Renaissance, but if you Google it, it comes up with 1430, which seems quite specific. Uh, Really? (laughs) And that was when Van Eyck was painting. Oh, he's got beautiful paintings. Yeah, I'd never looked at them very closely before, and I've just been salivating over them. They're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely amazing. Yeah, one of my favourites is actually Vermeer, but I think Vermeer's Quite a bit. Yeah, off we've got a. Well, well, we'll be in our dotage before we. That's it. That's the point. <laughs> <I think. laughs> Let's stick with Van Eyck first. Okay. <laughs> well, the Northern Renaissance covers Western Europe. That's north of the Alps on the mainland. So, northern France, northern Italy, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, and the Netherlands, with England on the periphery. Very much so. Cause really? You don't hear a lot about the English kings being particularly interested in art, do you? I don't no. remember any king. No. And we heard in the first episode that England was left behind during the Renaissance in all the arts apart from music and maybe architecture. Certainly mm. not art. <laughs> no, no. We found that with us trying to find images of mm. the people we're talking about. It just, not all of them exist. Yeah, and in future seasons we'll be doing artists but we couldn't find any for this one apart from Torrigiano and he's not English. (laughs) He's very much Italian and he only came over to do a few things. (laughs) Money, he's one of the few people that didn't shipwreck I suppose. He actually came here of his own accord. (laughs) The rest of them just didn't make it. (laughs) It, Although it's obvious it's pointless to talk about French or German or Italian art at this period since each is made up of principalities or dukedoms or bishoprics or city-states, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, the nations themselves didn't exist yet. No, no. And they, I think they were unlikely to have seen it as a northern renaissance because civic pride was much more strong than national pride. Mm-hmm. So how was the renaissance made possible? Well, towns have been growing since the 12th century but the sizes were knocked back by the Black Death, but then after that they continued to grow. So by the 15th century, they were also becoming autonomous. They had guilds, town halls, etc., whose laws could rival that of the ruler. Right. And that was particularly true in Italy and the Low Countries. I mean, think of all the problems that Charles the Bold and Maximilian both suffered and, more to the point, generated. Yes. <laughs> when the cities of the Low Countries formed the States General. And it's no coincidence that the areas with the highest 
urban potential, and that's a bit of jargon that means size and spread of the city, proximity to other towns and cities, and ease of tra travel between each. We're in Italy and the <laughs> Nolands. And that's where we find renaissances. Periods of peace brought prosperity. That was difficult to say. 1496, following the signing of the Intercursus Magnus, up until 1520, were very prosperous times. I don't know what happened in 1520. I thought we'd wait and see and find. Yes. <laughs> It'll be a surprise. Yes. <laughs> Let's not go down that rabbit hole yet. No. Well, that's the reign of Philip the Fair and the first part of Charles V, he of the big chin. There was considerable expansion around Antwerp, which soon rose to become a great city. And there was also vigorous economic growth in Holland and Zealand, which now mm. displaced the Hanseatic League as leaders of the sh of shipping and trade. Perhaps you ought to look at the Hanseatic League at some point. When they seem yeah, to, it certainly sounds like it. They seem to be busy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sharp rise in population in these areas. It's quite hard to reconcile this with the misery caused in the reigns of Charles the Bold and Maximilian that we were hearing about in Philip the Fair's time. Yes. So I think perhaps I didn't. I did Philip the Fair a disservice by not emphasising just how much better it got. Mm. Yeah, all right. He he was a he was still right gonna... so and so, but he yeah, was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he did have that benefit. I mean, that uh, the Renaissance could take place under him, whereas it right. probably couldn't have done under Charles the Bold and Maximilian, hmm. just because they were too busy fighting and paying taxes. Yes. The rivalry between cities and between groups within a single city was increasingly expressed in cultural terms, and the increased wealth was a stimulus to invest in works of art that was unprecedented in Northern Europe. By this time, with increased trade and the opening up of slash intrusion into Africa and, and the Far East, the fact that urban trade was becoming more important than rural trade that's discounting the cloth and, the mine and mining, the city was suddenly the place to be and where the nobles wanted to live. So it, so far it sounds like the reason the Renaissance was a Renaissance was able to take off. It sounds mostly like it's economic growth and population stability, so they have an excess of workers. Otherwise, nobody would have the time to do art. And without that economic growth, they wouldn't be able to afford to pay for artists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the fact that it was becoming a more urban place, because, yeah, the literary and intellectual hubs were moving from rural monasteries into cities to the humanist urban areas. And that was partly due to printing, because right. obviously you'd have the monks out there in the country scribbling yeah, away you and drawing scribes their beautiful the illuminations. Yeah. Yeah. We lost something with those illuminations. They're beautiful. They are, but I've got quite a lot of books, and I couldn't afford them if, if somebody had to, try, to do it by Very hand. true. Very true. Craftspeople benefited from each city's desire to outshine other cities in religious processions and magnificently decorated buildings, and this was reflected within cities and between wealthy patrons. Huge numbers of craftspeople could be involved in urban spectacles, musicians, actors, experts in temporary architecture, which we might call sets, I suppose, makers of elaborate fabrics and, and clothes, painters, metal workers, woodworkers and cooks. At the wedding of Charles the Bold and Auntie Margaret, there was over a week's worth of festivities. That was 9,000 international guests, 20,000 wow. Flemish inhabitants who were all allowed to stroke, expected to take part. 
Hundreds of craftspeople were involved, costing 60,000 livres. And it was all temporary. It was all swept away at the end. Wow. And as we saw, or will see, depending on <laughs> depending on when these go out, in the Patreon episode about Leonardo, one of his main roles when he lived in Milan was choreographing these temporary events. I don't know if I could handle doing something that temporary that required that much work just for it to be destroyed afterwards. And there's no... Unless someone was painting them. There's no record. Like, even the cloth of gold that we have for our background, the painting of the cloth of gold. Mm. Uh, we don't... You still... You can see what kind of stuff they had in the background, but it's so minute, you can't actually... I don't know. It just seems like such a shame to put in all that effort and all that beauty and just have it disappear. I suppose the people paying for it weren't the one making it, were they? So they just say, do this, bring us this, I want this, and they don't care where it goes afterwards. Yeah. There was a new dynasty in Burgundy, strongly influenced by the French court. The Burgundian dynasty chose to assert its status by means of the arts, And there was money in Burgundy, at least in the court. (laughs) In the 1480s, the Fugas of Augsburg supplanted the Medici as the greatest bankers, lending money to the ruling houses of Europe, especially Maximilian and Charles V. And we're definitely doing an episode on them because I've already bought the books. So they're just (laughs) just sitting on my shelf, (laughs) waiting to be used. This tradition of artistic patronage, once established, continued well into the 16th century. And the court and urban worlds each had their own forms of cultural expression. Choir music, tapestry, manuscripts and stained glass were created for the court, while urban communities invested primarily in architecture and altarpieces. Because the Burgundian dukes, I mentioned this before, didn't invest in architecture because they didn't have a permanent residence, but travelled yes. continuously. So uh, one of the few people associated with the court who did commission architects was Auntie Margaret because I suppose she was in Malin most of the time. Yes, and she came from an area that had these beautiful castles that they lived in, so why wouldn't she want to bring that with her? Mm. Instead of being... If they didn't have castles or buildings, did they constantly live in a tent? I assumed that they billeted themselves onto the nobles, like um, they do in progressions. Right. But I don't know. Hmm. Mm. I mean, it'd make you unpopular after a while, wouldn't it? Yeah. Isabella of Castile was a keen patron of northern art, particularly stained yes. glass windows. Yes. But I was, try- I was thinking, imagine shipping it to Spain, though. I, mean, I bet Oof. most of it didn't arrive. Yeah. One of the major changes was the opening up of artistic markets. Beginning in the middle of the 15th century, artists began to make works that hadn't been commissioned, surplus works to sell on the open market, and that was a new development. Just making it on the off chance. Towards the end of the 15th century, Antwerp overtook Bruges as the dominant centre for the art trade, largely due to its biannual art fair. And there was one in the Dominican convent, which dealt in tapestries, paintings, sculpture and metalwork, and another at the Church of Our Lady, which sold paintings, sculptures, books and prints. So God and Mammon, not so bad, presumably. Yeah. I I would have expected merchants to do it. I'm surprised the church got involved. Well, I wonder if they just, I mean, it said it's in a convent, but I think it's maybe, I assumed it was just using the venue and then artists would put up stalls. So it would be kind of like a flea market. Hmm. But with 
gorgeous artwork. Hmm. I wouldn't mind going to that flea market. Yeah, sounds good. Mm -hmm. Very popular form of art were cloth paintings painted on linen, and they were cheaper than painted panels or tapestries, and they could be used as flags or banners. I was thinking they're probably the sort of things you see in films about this time, aren't they? When you have little jousts and they all seem to have lots mm-hmm. of flags and banners all over the place with yes. people's emblems. Very few survived today, but between 1429 and 1481, 2,500 painted cloths were shipped from Antwerp to England. That's a lot. Hmm. More than I expected. Yeah. Especially considering you're dealing with a fairly small percentage of the population who'd want the things anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The Netherlandish workshops became the place to go for tapestries. The Tournay tapestry merchant Pasquier Cronier had depots in Antwerp and Bruges as well as Lyon. Cronier commissioned designs from painters to be sent out to tapestry makers. He owned these designs and so essentially he owned the copyright. Only he could produce copies of the big sellers like the destruction of Troy. Oh. Yeah, which I thought it seemed very modern. Yes, it very much does. Mm. That and I, I always wondered how they did the tapestry. Because, so, when you've got the tapestry, when I've done like rug versions and doing my own custom um, cross stitch or embroidery, I usually draw it out and then I transfer it to the embroidery by using light behind it. So I always wondered if they did the same thing with tapestries, but you said the painter would paint the entire thing and then they'd make it into a tapestry pattern? Um, no, well, I, I assume that it, the, they're sending out a smaller version and okay. they would be... I mean, when I've done things like that, I, I, I draw a grid and then I draw a big grid. On, I do things on Hessian and yeah. then transfer it myself. Okay. And I sort of I assumed it would be something like that because these were big things. Because Henry the Seventh bought a copy of the Troy Tapestry in 1488, and Charles the Eighth also owned a copy. But they measured 16 foot by 30 foot, so they were yeah, they were big huge. things. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the Renaissance was not just an advance in style; the market was already there to accommodate that style, which is important. I mean, you can be as innovative as you like, but if no one wants what you've made or even knows you've made it. There's not a lot of point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to get paid for it. <laughs> no. The Burgundian art market spread Burgundian courtly culture around Europe, as we've we've seen. Yes. I think we said in the first episode that it was described as Camelot. Mm-hmm. And most singers and composers of note of that time spent some time in the service of the Burgundian court, including Guillaume Dufay and Josquin Desprez, who are big names even today, if you're interested in choral music of the time. Choral music, yeah. The Flemish polyphonists revitalised European music by the use of in- increasing emotional expressiveness. Because plain chant, lovely as it is, yes, emotion doesn't... is not encouraged, I don't think, is it? No, it's very calm and soothing, and mm. there is no expression whatsoever. It, it... Hmm. And also they did large choral works like masses and things which you wouldn't, wouldn't have before. 
A further indication of the court's progressive patronage was its reception of humanism, and we can see an interest in classical authors and ancient history in the choice of literature for Philip the Fair's library. I feel I was maligned him a bit there, really. He did have a very big library. <laughs> did he use it? Um, <laughs> it doesn't feel like he did. He probably had very little time. <laughs> yeah, too many ladies. <laughs> At the same time, literature in Dutch, as with many other languages, was stimulated by printing. And one of the first books to be printed in Dutch was Reynard the Fox. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was the case for quite a lot of languages. It would either be Aesop's, tale or Aesop's Fables or... It would Reynard. have to be something that they already knew was popular that would mm. sell. Yeah. Which makes sense. Because in England, it was the Canterbury Tales, which yes. presumably was already popular. Yes. Sadly, as we've said, but inevitably, by the 1530s, illuminated manuscripts were finally superseded by printing and engraving. But the Northern Renaissance had something that the Italian Renaissance didn't have, and that was a religious Renaissance. The Italian peninsula stayed Catholic. I mean, whatever they may have thought of their individual popes, and you assume not much. Not much. The popes remained the head of the church, but Northern Europe underwent a religious upheaval that changed everything, as we'll see later. Mm-hmm. We'll now look at ten artworks, each of which either typified their period or moved it up a step. And I'll put images of all these objects on the website as soon as the episode goes out so you can see what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes it is better to Google these things because you can get a sort of little magnifying glass and you can peer in and look more closely at various bits of it. Yes. Number one, Holy Thorn Reliquary of Jean, Duke of Berry, circa 1400, now in the British Museum. Materials over skill. So this was the sort of thing favoured by the wealthy nobility in the Middle Ages. Much of the value of the piece is in its raw materials, and you can see there's a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold. There really is. So at the bottom... Mm. I'll just describe it. It's, it's got a ton of angels on it. As reliquary, isn't that where their ashes go or something? No, it's the holy thorn. Oh. Yes. So the way it looks like, the bottom of it looks like it's a couple of different Arc de Triomphes together to create a base. And then above it is a panel art, olive gold, and I'm guessing it's enameled with, I think, that's an image of the holy thorn and the story behind it. There is the actual thorn. There's the actual thorn. The real one. That You're looking at the actual thorn there. Oh, yes, I I believe I am. (laughs) And then it's surrounded on both sides up around the arc of that image in beautifully detailed little chair. It is phenomenal, isn't it? It really is. And then the halo at the top, but I can't tell what's surrounding the halo. There is a little bit dropped off, apparently. There should be, I think it's right at the top, there should be a little dove. Ah. And there's God sitting in his glory at the top there. Yes. And it's studded with pearls and rubies, and I think that's a sapphire right at the top. It's It's a lot of bling, isn't it, there? That's a lot of bling and a lot of work. The goldsmiths were at the top of the the pecking order for craftsmen due almost entirely to the fact that the basic material he worked with was the most expensive. Yes. 
But that does bring a downside, because these things don't always come down to us because they're an easy target if the nobleman is short of cash. Yeah. Yeah. They could easily be melted down. We've seen before how in itineraries of houses of rich families, artworks were priced according to the cost of materials. Almost yeah, as if they were just the there edge. in a heap. Yeah. They say, here's a load of gold, here's some, here's some pearls. Yeah. This Jean de Berry, he was, is a great collector, particularly of religious bling, as we can see. But he was also the de Berry of the Très Richeur de la Duc de Berry, the fa fabulously illuminated Book of Hours. Which I've put a, put a sketch there. Well, not sketches. It's, it's the actual thing. Yeah. Right. This reliquary, you, you didn't seem to be entirely convinced, but it houses a thorn from the crown of thorns as worn by Christ at the crucifixion. <laughs> Actually, worn is the wrong word. It? it makes it sound, sound like an accessory. <laughs> yes, it does. It was, it was inflicted upon him. Poor I, bloke. Am, I am sceptical. <laughs> you are? Oh, well, I'll try and convince you. <laughs> the French royal family apparently owned the whole crown. Right. And gave away individual thorns to family members and other rulers. Berry, de Berry owned six of them, and he gave one to Richard, Duke of York, and he's the one that was fighting against Henry VI in the War of the Roses. Mm -hmm. Wars of the Roses. Now, I would think if anything should be better kept intact, it would be the yes. crown of thorns. I, I've never understood why people take pieces of things. They break them apart. Yeah, I was thinking, was it a Roman emperor's wife who sawed the true cross in half and ended up with a plank? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you get those pieces of the true cross everywhere, because they hack the poor thing to bits. Yes. By this time, there was a climate for mutual gift-giving and competitive consumption. So if one king or prince or duke gives you something that's covered in gold, gold and more gold, you feel obliged to reciprocate. Okay. So workshops in metalwork, tapestry and illuminated manuscripts were popping up all over the place in northern Europe just to feed this sort of gift-giving craze. But sadly, very little or none of this work is signed, so we'll never know who these people oh, were. Oh, yeah, that's the disappointment. This sort of over-the-top, slightly gaudy, well, slightly gaudy, very gaudy. It's very gaudy, <laughs> to be honest. It is, it is very gaudy. Yeah, over, it's overly gold object. It carried on being highly prized, but as we'll see... As we look in the next nine objects, an interest in the skill of the craftsman or artist was increasingly being appreciated to the extent that it was accepted that a representation of gold and gems in paint could be as good, if not better, than the real thing and a good really? deal cheaper. Which hmm. brought art into, you know, if you could afford, afford it if it wasn't dripping with gems. Yes. Number two. The Well of Moses by Klaus Sluter, 1403. Now in Champmol, near Dijon, France. Statuary ceases to be subordinate to architecture. And this is quite an amazing, amazing thing. Oh, are those saints? They are Moses, David, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Daniel and Isaiah. Okay, so it looks like it is... Jer Stone. Sorry, Jeremiah is the one reading the book, which in the picture, and he's thought to be a portrait of Philip the Bold himself, who actually uh, oh, commissioned this. Right. And he used to wear a pair of metal spectacles made by the Duke's old goldsmith. But sadly, he's not wearing his specs anymore. So what we're looking at is uh, a stone carved bas relief. The, there are two tiers. The top tier is the saints. And they look like they're in between columns. 
They're all mm. different. They aren't They're very different. the same person. They're very different. And then below them are smaller people in archways. Do we know what they're supposed to represent? Ah, no. That's I was going to show you to say that that is what we've sort of come away from with this well. Because that is the sort of thing you would see on a cathedral where you get sort of massed ranks of figures yes. um, you know, on a cathedral wall. Yes. And you don't really look at the individuals. You just, it's just a, you know, a wham in your face sort of. Lots of people. Yeah, their, their sole purpose is to embellish the building rather than to be something in themselves, which is a bit, a bit unfair on the poor person who actually sculpted the thing. Yeah. But then you get this well by Sluter and suddenly you've got people. Actual people doing Actual things. People. There's someone reading a book. There's, uh, I presume it's Moses with the beautiful double beard. beard. The the pointed beard, the forked beard, mm. a saga thing. <laughs> and these beautiful angels all looking distraught. Well, they're not just staring off into space and just, you, you can feel there's emotion in this, which there isn't normally yeah. in medieval the, sculpture. They're holding their faces and mm. looking... Very upset. Look at the detail in the cough. Wow. This is, this is a new realism and that Klaus Sluter brought in. The cough actually carved in, it looks like embroidery. They carved embroidery into the stone for yeah. the clothing. What I find amazing is Jeremiah's book that he's reading because you can see he's cut right into the stone to make the pages to make the pages yeah and it looks like he's actually put in writing oh i wonder if it's actually writing yeah, i imagine it is because it's probably it's quite big this thing it used Same to be a lot people bigger on the scrolls mm. i love that you can see the stratification in the rock mm. what they carved out that's why you get those bands of different colors in the stone yeah oh it's just beautiful it is Stunning, Again, stunning. how long did that take? The reason I'm thinking that is because I just took seven months to quilt a baby quilt by hand. <laughs> so, like, that was just a quilt. How many years did this take? Yes. Wow. Well, I dread to think how long my novel's taken. <laughs> it's still near finished. <laughs> well, this well was built for the Carthusian Monastery of Chartreuse de Champmol. And that's just outside what was then the Burgundian capital of Dijon, now in France, obviously, where the mustard comes from. It's absolutely stunning. Sorry, I'm still going over this. This is gorgeous. The detail in the feathers, too. Like, they just... Wow. Sorry, continue. Yeah, I'd never heard of this man, I have to admit. I'd never yeah. heard of him before we started doing this. And now but I feel quite guilty because he's astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> it was commissioned by Duke Philip the Bold, to inspire the monks to pray for his soul. So it's, there's always an ulterior motive with these people, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Charles V wanted to be buried here, but I think it was already in French hands, so I don't think he was. A stunning piece. And it did, it did have a huge cross on the top before, but that's gone. Okay. Yeah, I feel oh, almost inclined to go to Dijon and go and see this thing. Yeah, and then I'm starting to wonder if it was like... Like the... Busts of the Roman emperors that they find in Italy were originally painted. That uh, would ruin it completely, I think. I don't know, but the I, angels might look quite nice painted, but I don't think the the prophets would benefit from paint. No. There's a computer 
recreation and of it recre- painted? Yeah. Well, it not this. Look- it was at the front of Wales Cathedral. Ah, okay. And because that's covered, that's that's like the picture at the bottom there. And, you know, it's absolutely covered in saints and angels yeah. and things. And you just think, well, that's far too much. <laughs> yeah. Each one of those individually painted. You think, oh, that's a bit tacky now for, for our yeah for our tastes. But then, uh, as I was looking at some things, like the they've got certain areas for Hampton Court. I think it's the chapel ceiling. It's bright reds and blues and golds, and it really does sort of hit you in the face mm. <laughs> when you walk in. Actually, Exeter Cathedral is quite painty inside, and it is uh, it's lovely. But I th- yeah. yeah, I think I'd want to keep it for the inside. The outside, mm, no, I don't think so. No. Number three, Ghent Altarpiece by Jan and Hubert van Eyck, 1432. Now at St. Bavo's Cathedral, Ghent, Belgium. Realism in painting. The art in Northern Europe had been rather static, as you can see by the medieval picture I put at the bottom of presumably Mary. Because you wonder what, in the medieval one, you wonder what the people are actually meant to be thinking. I mean, presumably grief. It's not actually easy to tell. But once you get to Van Eyck, each innovation brings more expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are, they, you can't say these are medieval, can you? They just don't look no. it. No. Like the Ghent altarpiece, the woman in blue, who is, I'm assuming, to be Mary? That's Mary. And then that's yeah. uh, Jean the Baptist Doesn't on the other side. Doesn't she look an awful lot like the, like, Isabella of Castile? Yes. <laughs> I mean, Ghent, I don't know how much Isabella would, would she have... She wouldn't have been there at all. I don't know. So maybe it was just the ideal of beauty by that time. Maybe that's not what Isabella looked like. They just, she just thought, right, I want to be... I mean, everybody, everyone wants to be photoshopped, I suppose, don't they? Yeah. These Van Eyck brothers in a class of their own and Van Eyck's yes. early admirers thought that they had been able to transform paint into jewels by means of alchemy. They were sort of right because the Van Eyck brothers tried lots of experiments using different oils with linseed and nut oil, resins, lavender oil. They also mastered the art of painting many, many thin layers. And that's what makes it glow. I mean, these, these things are oh. 600 years old and they still, still. they still really glow, don't they? Yes, they do. And also they used a lot of pictures of precious stones and metal just to show off, really, to say, look what we can do. Yeah, the one in the centre, his crown looks more like a Byzantine crown. It does. That's God. It's very Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern or Russian Orthodox headwear for the priests. Certainly Orthodox. Mm Mm-hmm. In Vasari's Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects, which we'll be hearing a lot of in Leonardo's episode, Van Eyck is the only non-Italian that he mentions. Really? And, and he said that Van Eyck invented oil painting. Well, he didn't, but he, he they certainly... Refined perf- it. Perfected it. And his methods yeah. are still used today, I and mean, that's, that's how people do wow. oil painting. Poor Hubert... He doesn't get so much of a look in because he died quite early. Well, they were still making this, so it's sort of Jan's, Jan's altarpiece. Okay. So the difference in these paintings is that it's not the cost of the stuff that, meant it make, that went into making the pieces, but it is the skill of the craftsman mm-hmm. and the fact we know who it was. One of our Patreons told us, uh, I think it was Elizabeth Warwick, 
said that the reason Mary always wears blue is because blue was the most expensive color to paint. Hmm. Well, it would be aquamarine, and that has to come from Afghanistan. Yeah. That came from lapis lazuli from Afghanistan. Yeah. I assumed that aquamarine meant really, really blue. Yes, so did I. No, not aquamarine, and ultramarine. 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 Yeah. I thought, but yeah, I thought, I thought ultramarine meant really, really, really blue, but it doesn't. It means over the water in Afghanistan. Oh. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Painters were pretty low down on the pecking order, along with tanners and the like, probably because they got their hands dirty. Yes. Possibly because they made graven images, which was forbidden in the Bible. Ah. Yeah. Mind you, mind you, it's often the churches that commission these things. And Van Eyck raised the status of painters almost immediately. I mean, people saw what he'd done and thought, wow, this isn't this isn't your average tanner, is it? Yeah, no, this is... And people harsh. said the Ghent altarpiece was the most beautiful work of art in Christendom. It I probably was far at that off. point. Yes, <laughs> could st well still be. It wasn't made for nobility, but a wealthy local politician, and you can see him on the front. You can see him and his wife when they when you close the altarpiece there on the front. Oh. Um, and it shows the wide range of patrons at this time, because Rogier's descent from the cross was commissioned by the Great Guild of the Crossbowmen, and they were a militia in Brabant. Oh. And you think, what is militia doing? Commissioning works of art. <laughs> So the altarpiece would have been kept closed except for during mass and on feast days. So on the outside, we've got sculptural grisé paintings of St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist. Oh. And he's the one holding the chalice as he's meant to be able to drink poison without any ill effect. And then on the two outer oh. panels, we've got the donor portraits of Eust Veit. I hope I, spelled, I pronounced that right. I did and look what is that? <laughs> That is the that is the donor that he was the mayor of oh. yeah he was the mayor of Ghent, and he got his wife Lisbeth Bollut. So on the upper rows are the Archangel Gabriel and the Annunciation, and at the very top you've got the prophets. Oh look at the angels! How do they yes. do that with the clothing? I know they called it wet style, so that you could see the the movement underneath or the skin or the body underneath. But wow. Well, I know Leonardo used to get cloth and drape it round a body, a, a thing he'd made, and then yeah. he'd put plaster of Paris on so that it would stick like that. Oh. And then you just paint that or paint an image of it. The clothes, pan, the clothes painting is deliberately less ornate than the inside because then when it's opened up on feast days, people will be knocked out by it. Yeah. So when it's open, we've got God at the centre at the top, as we've said, in his... Byzantine hat, the Virgin Mary on one side, John the Baptist on the other. Poor Joseph, he just gets lost. He doesn't. He's not not part of. He's a he's a real no. Ferdinand stroke Philip, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> yes, but possibly nicer. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then we got a group of angels singing and playing. Yes, but they mm. don't look like angels there because they're wearing like bright clothing. They just look like a normal choir, don't they? Mm-hmm. So you've got. They're playing instruments. There's a harp and a viol and the organ that St. Cecilia apparently is, yes. is uh, sitting at. There was one made based on this painting and apparently it sounded very nice. Hmm. And then obviously you've got Adam on the left and Eve on the right. And these are apparently the earliest examples of nudes in Netherlandish art. Oh. But in the 19th century, it was thought that having two naked people in a church was not appropriate. 
<laughs> Except that Adam and Eve didn't have clothing. Well, their shame was covered by animal skins. <laughs> right now it's covered by hands. But interesting that he look, he's covering, it looks like, his chest. But she's not. Oh, is she holding the apple? Yeah, it looks like a very oh. tiny apple. If you look at his foot, you can see he's got his toes raised as if he's yes. just about to step out of the, the painting. Yeah. That's aston astonishing. Yeah. But at Lowdown, we've got the Adoration of the Lamb. Okay. In the middle at the bottom. Yeah. And we've got the Adoration of the Lamb, and that's the, a lamb with a wound in its chest which gushes blood into a chalice with a whole crowd of people gathered around to worship it. And I think that's one of the, these things where if you're within the religion... That seems fine, but Except to those outside, kind of... it's a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, it also kind of smacks of worshipping an idol. You're back yes. to an animal that everybody's worshipping. But it must have been acceptable because it's in the church. The figures to the right <laughs> of the fountain, they're the three popes who were each claiming papacy during the Great Schism. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and also there are some pagan philosophers there as well, which seems interesting. I suppose that's... Oh. Uh, early humanism. It had an, the altarpieces had an interesting history. It was stolen by the French after the revolution and ended up in the Louvre. Then it was returned to Ghent in 1815, following Waterloo. But the councillors of Ghent immediately pawned it for 240 quid. <laughs> but since they failed to redeem it, it went through several hands. And in World War I, German troops took it. Oh, no. But it was returned after the war as part of reparations. And in World War II, a decision was made to take it into the Vatican for safekeeping. But just as it was en route, Mussolini declared war alongside Germany. Oh, no. <laughs> so the painting was stored in a museum in Pau, which I think is in France, with French, Belgium and German military representatives signing an agreement which required the consent of all three before it could be moved. Okay. In 1942, Hitler demanded that it should be taken to Berlin. And it was later stored in the salt mines of Altersee, which I think quite a lot of artworks were stored there, and it didn't do, didn't do them any good. No. I understand the thought of it. They thought the salt itself would keep it dry, but it, it didn't. Perhaps it took, made it too dry. I don't know. After the war, the Allies took it back, so at last it was home. But one piece, and I think it's one of the pieces at the bottom on the left, was stolen and never recovered. So one of those is a reproduction. Oh, people. <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing. It really is. Number four. Arnolfini Marriage by Jan van Eyck. 1434. Now at the National Gallery, London. Depiction of Interiors. If you have YouTube... If you have YouTube's A Stitch in Time, it's a documentary where they used original techniques and original uh, materials to recreate her beautiful green dress. Ah. So if you want, like, this is such a gorgeous piece. And they were talking about everybody's thinking she was pregnant. Nope. So this is the one where it's got the merchant is on the left. He is all in black with a great big hat. He does look like the Mad Hatter, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And then they've got a little terrier in the middle. But on the right is his wife, who is in this gorgeous green gown. 
the interior of the gown is fur. That's the cream that you see. Mm -hmm. And the reason she's standing like that is because the gown is so heavy and so long that you actually have to lift it up and lean back to be comfortable in it. And it wasn't till they actually recreated the dress and the host wore it that they realized that that was what was going on. Oh, I see. The dress was something like 30 or 40 pounds of weight. I knew she wasn't pregnant and I knew that, yes, it's the amount of material just said, look, I've got the money. I can afford yes. it. I can afford to be uncomfortable. Yes, but you've got to watch that. A Stitch in Time. Amazing okay. work. It's a beautiful documentary. She she does several episodes and this is one of them that they chose to recreate. It's extraordinary. I'm just looking at the sleeve. That bit of fur on the sleeve must be actually sewn into the shoulder, mustn't it, for it to, to stay up like that? It's actually the entirety of the inside of the dress. Mm. So that's one of the things that make the weight and then if you look below the fur piece it wasn't until they actually started sewing it so that's actually yards and yards and yards and yards of fabric that has been sewn into loops and then split with pinking shears so it's so I it'd be sort of ruched but hmm. yeah it's folds and loops that are then pinked well. if anybody's wondering pinking shears look like sawtooth teeth it keeps mm. fabric from fraying and that's called deerskin wool, and it would have most likely been English wool. All right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, you got to watch that documentary. Such a good episode. There's several signs of wealth here. There's the, yeah, as you say, there's the opulent clothing, and then we've got the mm -hmm. brass chandelier, the oriental yes. rug, and oranges, which are also very expensive at this time. Yes. So they just sort of left oranges lying around to say, look, <laughs> you can afford oranges. Wasn't it one of the King Charles's dukes had a pineapple that they put on the mantelpiece and just watched it rot because it was so expensive? <laughs> and the bedding, the bedding itself, that rich mm. color red and how much fabric it is there. That's a very expensive bed. Yes, yes. The whole thing is designed to point out money. And if I remember correctly, that's a mirror in the background that if you were able, if you were in front of the actual painting, which is ginormous, you can see the back of the gowns in that mirror. And I think you can also see Van Eyck painting. painting. Yeah, I think yeah. so. There was a theory about this that she is actually, this is not a wedding painting, but a commemorative painting. Because there's a bit of um, dispute about who these people are. I mean, mm -hmm. All, Nobody knows. Well, it's within the Arnolfini family, but which one? And if it's uh, Giovanni di Nicolai, or di, di Nicolai, his first wife, Constanza, was dead by the time this was painted. Aww. And there's been a theory that it's commemorative because there's a few, I think slightly, slightly dubious myself, but the mirror at the back has scenes of the Passion of Christ around the outside, Mm -hmm. And the side where Giovanni stands shows Christ still alive, but on his wife's side, he's either dead or resurrected. Oh. And although it's day, shown through the window, there's a candle burning, but there are two candles, and the one on his side is burning, and the one on hers has gone out. Oh. Also, he looks quite miserable if it's meant to be a wedding, for, wedding yes, picture. Yes, he does not look happy. No. So it's possible that that's what it was, that it's not a wedding one at all, but a commemoration. Ugly little dog. Well, if we're looking for symbols, and the, pe you know, the people of this time love their symbolism, 
Yes. Well, the dog can uh, symbolise fidelity. It's uh, the thing I said. Said ah. red said all or lust, and I thought I don't think that's appropriate for this one. No. The green of the dress could mean hope. The white of her cap could be purity. The cherries on the tree outside the window could mean love. Or, when the portrait was painted, she happened to be wearing a green dress with a white cap. There happened to be a cherry tree outside <laughs> yes. the thing. And they had a dog. <laughs> yes. It's been pointed out that the couple are wearing a lot of clothes for what seems from the blossom outside the window to be a spring day. And an awful lot has been read into this. But it seems to me that for a start, some spring days can be quite nippy. and You might yes. want a few clothes. And it was colder at that time. Yeah. And if you're having a portrait painted, you put your best clothes on, don't you? I mean, you yes. don't want to be painted in your tracky bottoms. You want your, your full, your best togs. Yeah. But as I did read, some scholars have said that the fact that the man is holding the woman's hand with his left hand implies that the marriage was morganatic. Oh. That, that means unequal in rank. Yes. So Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodfield was morganatic. But it struck me that if he held her with his right hand, he'd be facing backwards. Yes, he would be. <laughs> so that wouldn't make a very good portrait. I mean, what's oh, he meant to do? Oh, they could sides and then he'd yeah, be holding then her hand with his right. But should be. I found myself getting a bit short-tempered with art historians <laughs> by this point. <laughs> I'm beginning to think the main thing about the painting is that nobody really knows anything for sure. Yeah. But plenty of people will speculate. The painting was owned for a time by Diego de Guevara, who was part of Joanna the Mad's court. Yes. Mm. And in 1428, Van Eyck actually came to England. He didn't want to. He, <laughs> he did a Philip the Fair and was blown off course. He was, he was trying to get to Portugal to paint um, the prospective spouse of Philip the Bold, but no, he ended up in England for a bit. <laughs> Number five, Mary of Burgundy's Book of Hours, 1477, now in the National Library of Austria. The Illuminator's art is still alive. Mar uh, no, Mary of Burgundy's Book of Hours. You almost said Margaret. I did. <laughs> 1477, now in the National Library of Austria. So the Illuminator's art is still alive at this point. It's Gorgeous. Lots of blues, swirls. It is stunning. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Flowers. The actual page of writing is quite small compared to the margin. Yeah, tiny. <laughs> marginalia, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I did say, well, nearly say Margaret because it was thought for a time that it was Auntie Margaret's book. But ah. now the consensus of opinion is that it was Mary's. And she's the one that fell off her horse. Yeah. So it was completed in Flanders around 1477, and that was the year that Mary took over the rule of Burgundy on the death of her father. And you can see some of the pages are printed on black, and that was thought to be commemorating the death of her father. Oh. But some of them are painted on white, and that was thought to be commemorating her marriage to Maximilian. Okay. Apparently so. Now, we've talked before about how popular these, book, these types of books were. Yes. But what were they and what were they for? Well, the Book of Hours is a Christian devotional book used to pray the canonical hours. So you had to know what to pray about and when. Mm -hmm. So your average Book of Hours consisted of a calendar because you had to keep tracks of the many, many saints' days. Yes, and there were a lot. 
there were a lot, and important days such as Christmas and f or feast days of the apostles were usually written in red, and those okay. were red letter days. Oh. Mm. Or gold, but we don't have gold letter days. No. The rest of the saints or festivals were in, in normal black. And then there were the extracts from each of the Gospels, usually illustrated with the evangelists with their respective icon. So that's Mark with his lion, and Matthew with a man, and right. Luke with a winged ox, and John with an eagle. Then prayers to the Virgin, hours of the Virgin, the eight canonical hours of the day, that's Matins, Louds, Prime, Prime, Tercy, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing these right, Sext, <laughs> None, Vespers, and Compline. And then the hours of the cross, usually a hymn, Penitential Psalms, the litany, that's asking asking for the Virgin and Saints to intercede for you, Office of the Dead, and the Suffrages. So that's more prayers. Wow. It sounds overwhelming, but I guess if you're born to it... If you know what it means, it yes. probably help. The use of books of hours are especially popular in the Middle Ages, and as a result, they are the most common type of surviving medieval illuminated manuscript. Because there were so many of them. And they were, they were often the only book in the house and were commonly used to teach children to read. So sometimes they also contain an alphabet. Aww. Many of the books of ours were made for women. And there's some evidence that they were sometimes given as wedding presents from a husband to his bride. Aww. And not all of them were illustrated, obviously. Otherwise, they couldn't be afforded. <laughs> no, not, certainly not to this extent. And the, the borders are filled with what's called drollery. That's flowers and insects and jewels and animals and little figures. Oh. Yeah. There are some paintings which take up the whole page, okay. uh, like the picture of Mary, and she's recognisable because she's similar to other paintings, but they all look the same, don't they, these women? Yes. Yes, they do. And she's wearing what I was always brought up to call a wimple, but it's oh. apparently, apparently called a henin. Oh, I didn't know that. And she's reading her book of hours, so it could be a sort of picture within a picture because inside that book there might be a picture of her reading her book of hours reading and then book. inside that. <laughs> so that's not a wimple? Apparently it's a henin. A henin. Or henin. Never heard of that. Yeah. Yes, I love her little puppy on her lap. Mm -hmm. And that's a sim symbol of faithfulness this time. Now, dogs appear quite often in pictures and they all seem, according to art historians, they always seem to have a different symbolic meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a different type of dog. Yes. Are those pearls on the, I'm thinking it's the chest underneath the painting? I don't know if you can see my mouse. I think that's her one. rosary. Oh, okay. I presume that's her rosary. But on the right of that, there is a, a vase containing an iris. Yes. And that means purity. And so, uh, right. Iris and Lilies both mean purity. Mary is right. sitting by a window and then you look through yes. the window and there's the Virgin Mary. With Jesus on her lap. Yeah. Jesus and just, does not look like a baby. They never they do. They are good they at never babies. Do. He looks like a very itty-bitty man. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing I've got. I don't want to hear a thing against Leonardo, but he was rubbish at babies. <laughs> yeah, everybody was rubbish at babies. You think, have you never seen one? <laughs> yeah, look at the detail on the dress of the woman to the left of Mary. The black dress with the detail right. on it. I think Mary, our Mary, is meant to be the in the one of the green dress standing at the back. Ah, okay. It seems odd that the Mary sitting by the window reading is just taking no notice at all of the Virgin Mary through the yes. window. But the page she's reading has a passage on it that she's pointing to. Okay. 
and it reads Obsecro de Domina, no, Obsecro te Domina Sancta Maria. I beseech thee, Holy Mary. So it's thought that the vision of the Virgin has been conjured up by the words in the book. As if mm. through the window we're seeing what seeing Mary of Burgundy's thoughts. Whereas for life. us nowadays, it would be like a few dots and a big cloud above her head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I think this this going through a window bit is a lot nicer. Yeah, it really is. And the, wow, they put her in a cathedral and everything. Mm. That's a very detailed imagination or conjuring. And by the end of the fifteenth century, books of hours are being printed which means they were affordable to others apart from the nobility, but they obviously weren't as nice as this one. Sometimes they were recycled. After all the work that goes into them, it would be a pity if they were just thrown away. And Henry VII took Richard III's Book of Hours after Richard's death and gave it to, guess who? Uh, (laughs) Gave it to his mum. So she even sneaks into an episode about (laughs) art across the water. Number six, The Last Judgment by Hieronymus Bosch, 1506. Now at the Academy of Fine Arts, Vienna. Apocalyptic art. This was commissioned by our man Philip the Fair in what turned out to be the last year of his life. And we looked at it before in his episode. And it's quite hard to show without just pasting lots and lots of pictures showing all the characters because there's a lot going on once you open this thing and there are websites that allow you to magnify part of it there was a drollery tradition featuring grotesque creatures and it was especially seen in margins of illuminated books and also seen in gargoyles and other statuary on the outside of churches but Bosch was probably one of the first if not the first to put these figures in paintings Drollery was a term coined in France in the late 1500s to describe the bawdy, comic, or grotesque. Yeah, there's a few things in here that are not very nice. Disturbing. These can include humans in bizarre poses, or part human, part beast creatures, and it can show images of the world turned upside down, as in the hare shooting the hunter. And the purpose of drolleries was to personify sin. So animals such as monkeys or pigs, which were associated with special vices, but when they were combined with human features, they imbued the people with these vices. And we saw drollery in Mary's Book of Hours, although they didn't contain this sort of stuff. <laughs> no, like this is... I managed mm. to find a much larger version, and some of the acts in there are not very nice. No. Like, you've got one tree that's got three people pierced on it. Oh, it's very unpleasant. But yeah. they, this thing was allowed by the church... But only in a moralizing context. Well, I don't quite get the egg man. All you see is two legs. Yeah, it's two human legs outside of an egg with an arrow shot through the egg. I was hoping, now when I started looking at this, that there'd be somebody explaining everything that was going on, and no, it didn't. What's with the weird fish man over here? I think he's part of this drollery tradition. Oh my goodness, I don't know... Hmm. Slippery like a fish, and so the person's slippery? I'm not sure. This looks like somebody was taking LSD. I had an image of Bosch as being some sort of strange loner, sort of medieval goth, really. Yeah. (laughs) But apparently not at all. Quite a sociable person. He joined the Brotherhood of Our Blessed Lady, which still exists today. 
and they had sort of dinners and it was all quite convivial. And yes, he wasn't seen as a weird really? lunatic. Mm. Well, if you think... Pain, this painting is very, very strange. Well, Philip commissioned this for his own collection. So, I mean, it's, it's not because Philip was a weirdo. This was... I think you have to try and look at it through with medieval eyes because we don't... We just see it as a nasty picture. Well, not a nasty picture, an interesting picture, but of people being horribly mutilated and tortured. Yeah, because this one in the center, that's an actual grinder. They're putting people through a grinder. Yes, but we don't believe in purgatory. Correct. Yeah, we don't. And this would certainly make you think you'd, you'd be rushing to church to pray night and day to get your loved ones through purgatory as quickly as possible. Because the one on the right is hell. Yeah. This one in the middle is the one that's not quite so bad, which you what? can't quite believe. So when the front is opened up, the left panel shows the birth of evil and the loss of paradise. So we're really yes. cutting to the chase here because in the left panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights, it shows Eve being introduced to Adam. And it's so you've got one, at least at least one joyful panel. Yeah. Even if it quite it goes quite rapidly downhill. But this So one, are we supposed to be looking at them as sketches? So this bottom is Eve You start on the left in the left panel. You start right from the top actually. You start right right at the top you can see the fall of the rebel angels. There we are. Oh. They look like like um mosquitoes or something. Yeah. They do look and like they're mosquitoes. battling against white angels and losing. And then you read it from bottom to top. So first Eve is created from Adam's rib. Mm -hmm. Then she's tempted by what looks like a very human-looking snake, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Who's lurking in a tree. And then you can see the Archangel Michael chasing, chasing Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, brandishing the sword. And the animals that surround them are all there for a reason, as you can imagine. Yes. The dog. <laughs> <laughs> this time, it means striving through meditation towards divine knowledge. Why doesn't oh. it mean faithfulness or lust or something? I don't know. If I don't you... know, and it looks like it's covering its eyes. Like, oh no, here we go. I don't know who decides these things. <laughs> what <laughs> means what either. when? Well, the other problem is, is you're, you're talking about this being something generally known, but depending on the locality, it could have a different meaning. Unless, unless there's inbuilt knowledge that we don't know about now. Because the ducks on the pond mean love and faithfulness. The okay. cockerel means faith and vigilance. Okay. There's a little chappy there. And then there's a fox, which is obviously a symbol of evil. The, there's a porcupine. Can you say porcupine? I'm not sure, unless this looks like a snail to me, but I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to be a snail. Yeah, I, I can't see if that's that size. But there is a porcupine that symbolizes greed. And I assume it's because of the link with pigs, pork, you pine. Because it, it means spiny, <laughs> spiny pig. Porcupine. <laughs> And the owl, the seductive power of evil. I think that's sitting in the tree. Yes, it's right there. All the, all the animals there have some reason for being there. Right, the central panel. Well, now we get to the weird stuff. Very <laughs> this strange. This shows the last judgment as described by Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels are with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from goats. 
and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left and there's the people at the top standing either side of god and in the ah. painting they aren't literally sheep and goats there's a they're just people kneeling groups of people yeah yeah and just off to the left you can see the saved souls floating up into the sky ah. but they're quite small yes and down below you can see what happens if you don't make it yeah mm. well the town's on fire Yes, this is the book of Revelations. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that is what's going on down there. And I only see two women. The rest of them are all men. Yes. Yeah, so women were fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see which Bosch preferred painting, because the sunny happy bit... The all-saved bit is very small compared it's to the rest small. of it. It's very small, yeah, it's barely anything. <laughs> Most of Last Judgments, it's sort of half and half-ish. Yeah, this is not half and half. <laughs> no, no, I think as far as Bosch is concerned, many are, many are called, but few are chosen. And this central panel is divided into areas representing each of the seven deadly sins. So gluttons are being cooked or made to eat on the left, and that's in that little uh, oh, yes, pub thing. Oh, yeah. Having his, what is that, a full barrel of ale being poured down his throat? It's not ale. If you look, <laughs> this is very bosh. You see that little black window at the top there? It's got yes. um, it's some de demon's little bottom poking out there, and it's filling, that's filling the... Oh! I know, I know. And you can see, where is she? The woman in the, there's a corn, a, a, a horned or conical hat. If you ever see a woman with a corned or, corned or honical horned or conical hat that represents lust as it's the headgear of a procuress or madam i do not see a woman with a and just inside if you look just inside the pub as well or the little inn looks well like i see chair. people hanging here and there's a, there's another there's a, a cauldron and these people they're people being boiled in the cauldron oh, and they're the being cauldron. boiled in molten metal of their own money and they represent avarice oh and Anger is represented by three knights in the middle, one of whom's wearing a severed head at the top of his helmet. Oh, here, yes. Ew, gross. It's a bit like John Devere's boar and half-brick combo. But yeah, he's got a this severed guy's head. helmet just has a fish hanging out of it. Yes. And some of the stranger creatures have been found in marginalia of illuminated manuscripts, so they're not all his from his oh. imagination. So either Bosch took them from there, or there is a source book for these things. So that's why there might be more of um, a consensus about what everything means than we would think from our perspective. Right. And then on the right, you go to hell. Which doesn't look as bad. Well, I suppose <laughs> we don't know what's happening because there's the devil is standing in the gateway to hell, which is decorated with toads. Oh, and okay. You notice but he's wearing a sort of oriental dress with a green turban. Very much so. Mm. Yes, I think they might be getting at something there. And behind, there's a green giant. Yeah, spitting out something. And on the right is a giant clutching her belly. And she's said to be female because she's wearing the conical hat. And she's covered with red and white spots, which one of the books I read suggested could be symbolised syphilis. Yes. Oh my. And of course, it's a woman who has it. <laughs> yeah. Now, this obsession with eating, peeing and excreting is not just Bosch's. And it's a common trope representing hell. Okay. It's showing impurity and the vileness of sin. And I suppose it's similar to what we've heard about medieval medicine, the need to expel bad humours 
Except right. in this case, you're expelling evil. Yeah. But yeah, but it seems once you get to purgatory, there does seem to be only one direction, doesn't there? Yes, you're not going back. You're not going up. Why would somebody want to look at something like this? I don't know. I, is it, as they would probably say, to fear hell and so, seek repentance and forgiveness? Or is it the pleasure in imaginative fantasy, like people watch horror films? You know, the, free, the frisson being that it might actually, you know, if you watch a thing about an axe murder, it could happen to you, but you hope it won't. So I don't know. Philip got this for himself, not to put up in a church or anything. This was right. his, for his own, pl own pleasure. It's, it's I can't imagine one. him fearing hell, though, from his behaviour. Mm. I don't like horror films, so perhaps it's not, I don't not, like not easy to understand. Either. Number 7, Melancholia 1 by Albrecht Dürer, 1514. Now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York. The Rise of Prince. And here we have a very grumpy-looking angel. Yeah. Some people have described this print as a psychological self-portrait. Because even then, melancholy was associated with artistic creation. So the angst-ridden artist is not a modern invention. The angel may be Dürer's muse, and she symbolises Dürer waiting for inspiration to come. Because he's known to have had a crisis of confidence when he drew this, because he wrote, What is beautiful? I don't know. And why is it called Melancholia One? Well, there are three levels of melancholy, according to the German philosopher Cornelius Agrippa. Three is the highest. That's intuitive thought, and that's what theologians used. Okay. Two is middle, and that's reason, and that's what scientists and physicians used. And one was the lowest, which is imagination, and that's just for artists. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Vicino, who we'll come across if we do an episode on Renaissance magic, which is beginning to look increasingly likely, thought that most intellectuals were influenced by Saturn and okay. so were doomed to be melancholic. He equated oh. melancholia with the elevation of the intellect since black bile raises through the comprehension of the highest because it corresponds to the highest of the planets. So the humans humans really do percolate through all thought at this time. Mm -hmm. I'm having trouble understanding this print. Like there's sort of a weird geometric shape. We'll do a tour of it in a minute. Mm -hmm. It's around this time of the Renaissance that melancholia gained the sort of kudos of being associated with artistic and intellectual genius. Because before that, it was considered just sort of an indulgence and vice. Um, it was associated with sloth. But this deification of melancholy was very much part of the Tudor mindset, because you only have to listen to the music of John Dowland to know that they loved themselves a bit of melancholy, didn't they? Yes, they did. Mm. And Jura travelled to Italy to escape the plague in Nuremberg in 1494, and he painted his journey in a new medium, watercolour, and they're said to be mm. the first true landscapes in European art. Really? That early? Mm. And, uh, for some reason in my head, art and watercolour didn't come about for another couple hundred years. Well, perhaps perhaps it didn't catch on as much as, as yeah. oil painting did. But German artists before Dürer were known as hand workers, and they were equated to butchers and bakers. And the Italians saw artists as special people who demanded respect. So Dürer said when he went to Venice, he was a gentleman, but back at home he was seen as a parasite. <laughs> when we chose the round flaunt to flaunt, we were hoping for a lot of symbolism to decode. And you will find it's oozing with symbolism, this one. So, yes. starting at the top left and going clockwise. Okay. You've got a rainbow. That represents the heavens. 
Okay. The comet or shooting star may have been a bad omen, and Jura may have seen, as a meteorite apparently landed near Basel in 1492, and Jura was there, so he might have seen that. Okay. The balance represents the weighing of souls in judgment. Yes. The hourglass is a memento mori, representing limited time. Okay. The bell is rung to mark the end of someone's life. The magic square, we'll come back to the magic square. Okay. The angel's wearing a wreath of buttercups and watercress which are damp plants and so antidotes to the dry humour of melancholy. Right. <laughs> and it's said that her face is dark due to too much black bile, a sign of melancholic disposition. But I thought her face was in shadow, frankly. So did I. <laughs> yes, I think it is. The angel has keys dangling from her belt, which represents order and power. And then on the step is Jura's monogram, which is a D under a big A. Oh, OK. Yeah, he puts that on everything. The nails in the bottom right corner represent the crucifixion, as well okay. as being part of the tools needed for creation. The dividers and compasses the angels holding represents rationality. The sphere at the bottom left corner is an ideal form. So okay. apparently the radius of the sphere is the same as the distance between the two prongs of the open dividers that the angel's holding. So oh. she'd obviously been busy measuring the sphere when she was suddenly hit by a bout of melancholy and had to have a sit down. Right, okay. the sleeping dog represents... Is that a dog? Yes. It represents fidelity and melancholy on this occasion. It's a very skinny dog. It's, it's I think, yes, dog. it looks like a whippet. The milestone might be a biblical reference indicating that it would be better for a sinner to put a milestone around its neck, his neck and throw themselves into the water, that quote. <laughs> but nobody mentioned the milestone. I was guessing on that one. So that's my particular uh, take on this thing. <laughs> The octahedron is another ideal form, but these two geometric shapes may have been a bit of boasting on Jura's part, just to show his sense of perspective was so good, because these things uh -huh. are difficult to, difficult to draw. The crucible hidden just behind it may have had alch alchemical connotations, and the bat is a creature of darkness. So everything there has a reason. Yeah. The magic square, if we come back to that, that's at the top right. The most magic yeah. squares are happy just to make the same amount whether you read down or across or diagonal. Yes. And I'll put a link to a YouTube clip that demonstrates 86 different combinations of four of the numbers in the magic square that will make up the number 34. Oh. And at the bottom you've got 15 and 14, and that's the date of the drawing. So I don't know if that's a, quite a common knowledge of this magic square with its 86 different combinations. But I will put this, this YouTube thing up because it's, yeah, after a while you think, this is ridiculous. This yes. is absolutely crazy. Now, maths and art are seen as two entirely different things. But then geometry was vital to understand this new world of perspective and realism. The magic square is a talisman of Jupiter, an auspicious planet that fends off melancholy. And the different square sizes were associated with different planets. So you've got the 4-4 four, four square representing Jupiter. Okay. And there's, there's a different, different size for Saturn, which brought on melancholy. And then you had your 4-4 four, four square to get rid of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. that makes no sense whatsoever. It doesn't, but I've read quite a lot on alchemy. And I know I'm, I'm quite used to things making no sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so art historians have been trying to break the code of this print for centuries. And it's even disputed whether it is possible to break the code or whether there even is a code. And maybe Jura is leaving a deliberately ambiguous, unsolvable puzzle to drive everybody mad. Yeah, we, you didn't mention the latter, so... 
I'm not sure what that means. Are you going up? Going up to heaven? We can hope. After the Bosch one, it'd be quite nice to have some some way out, wouldn't it? (laughs) Van Dura is the first, one of the first artists to make use of the new process of printing. Because he made more money selling lots of cheaper prints than he did selling the original paintings. And most most artists now would understand that. Yes. But this did make him vulnerable to plagiarism. And in one case, Dura took to court. The verdict was that the plagiarizer could copy Dura's print, but he couldn't use his little monogram. That was it. That was must be the first incident of branding, I think, isn't it? Yes. All right, you can you can use the thing, but you can't use the brand. Hmm. An interesting sideline of the printmaker was that they could circumvent the church and sell their prints as indulgences. Because the, the Mass of St. Gregory by Dura was engraved along the bottom with a text that promised that those who recited specific prayers before the image which would receive a reduction of 20,000 years from their allotted time in purgatory. <laughs> but there's no evidence that this came from the church, or, or indeed Dura. It's just a marketing strategy on the part of the printmaker. Wow. <laughs> Buy this print and, and save yourself 20,000 years of torment, being wow. sawn in half and put through a mincer. <laughs> I thought that was quite sneaky. <laughs> Very. <laughs> Number eight, Luther by Lucas Cranach, 1529, now in the National Museum of Germany, Nuremberg. Art as propaganda and iconoclasm. I'm sorry, but this is the most boring image we've got. (laughs) Just a man. (laughs) It's an important man. So Luther wasn't the first to use prints as propaganda because Maximilian I was perhaps the first ruler to realise the potential of the printed imagery for the propagation of political ideas because he sent out a large print showing a triumphal arch and his own lineage and military successes and they were to be distributed to nobles and town halls. So he was saying, look, look at me, look at me, just at me. (laughs) But Luther's was the first actual campaign to use print. He looks like he's the type of person, like just the look on his face is, I know what you're thinking. Yes, it's, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, He's all dressed in black. I mean, you can hardly make out his clothing. You can just about make out he's got big, big lapels. Black collar, black shirt, black, black everything. But it's not a, look, I can afford black, is it? It's a... Somber. Yes, this is, I'm, I'm wearing this because I'm, I don't care about clothes. I only care about God. Cranach's drawing of Luther was meant to make Luther a familiar and instantly recognisable face because he is actually branding Luther. Okay. So he also drew images depicting the veniality of the church as a whole and the papacy in particular. For instance, Christ driving the money money lenders from the temple and the Antichrist gathering money. The Antichrist is the Pope, who at this time was Leo X, the Medici Pope. And it was also Cranach who drew that strange image of the papal ass that we saw in... Alexander's right. thing. It was sort right. of parts. It had sort of scales and that's a bit strange. The thing that yes. was meant to be dragged out of the Tiber. So these pic- this picture was not aimed at the elite, but to everyone. As Luther wrote in German, not Latin, and Cranach's images made the information even more accessible. And this is when we also start to get printed songs and rhymes, which cryptically allude to political and religious events of the day. Right. 
and which we will cover in the much vaunted but so far neither researched nor written episode on seditious rhymes that I keep going on about. So Craner's image of Luther was used as a basis for other pictures, some with the addition of a halo and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. But the same image could also be used by Luther's detractors. Craner used his basic image to show the many guises of Luther as a doctor and a monk and various things. But Hans Brossemer took this idea and turned Luther into the seven-headed monster from the Book of Revelations, showing him again as a doctor and a monk, but also as a Turk, a lunatic, and Barabbas. <laughs> so they were learning that if you make an image familiar, then people can use it against you. Yes. <laughs> they can use the, that familiarity. And obviously the church and the civic authorities weren't going to sit back and let people write nasty things about them and draw taunting pictures. So Luther was excommunicated in 1521. And soon after, Charles V proposed le legislation stating... No one dare to compose, write, print, paint, sell, buy, or have printed, written, sold, or painted, from now on, whatever manner, such pernicious articles so much against the holy orthodox faith. And that covered the whole Holy Roman Empire. So texts and images were publicly burnt. Huh. Luther taught that salvation came not from pious donations or good works, but by an individual's faith alone. So Luther's doctrine dispensed with the need for an authorised church. And this right. had an impact on art, since in Luther's view, images had no role to play. So in Protestant territories, artists were without work all of a sudden. Oh, right. Mm. And even worse, in 1521, iconoclasts, fearing that the image could become an idol, they were dragging sacred images out from the churches and burning and smashing them. And then they would mock the image, saying, you know, if you're so powerful, how come we can destroy you? Oh, jeez. So iconoclasm spread, reaching Strasbourg in 1524, Basel 1529, reached Scotland 1559. There's no mention of England, but I think, I think it kept its iconocla <laughs> iconoclasm for the 1640s and the Puritans. And the iconoclast movement branched out to include the revolt that, in general, led to the biggest revolt in Europe prior to the French Revolution, and that was the German Peasants' War. And this was brutally put down by mercenary armies, leading to the death of over 100,000 peasants. Wow. That was a lot, yeah. And Luther didn't support them. He was afraid of what had been unleashed. I mean, he didn't support the peasants. He said iconoclasts were wrong and images were not that important and to take them that seriously was itself idolatrous. So. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yes. And to counteract iconoclasm, an altarpiece was commissioned from Lucas Cranach for the church at Wittenberg. And instead of images of the saints, the altarpiece shows Luther himself, which seems to be another sort of worship, a sort of worship yes. of celebrity now, isn't it? Yes. So, as well as the Lutheran altarpiece and images for religious propaganda, Cranach's workshop was also churning out pieces for the very people he complained about, like the Archbishop <laughs> of Mantz. <laughs> and also secular pieces like the erotic Venus with Cupid, the honey thief. And that was destined for a very different clientele. <laughs> Number nine. The Ambassadors by Hans Holbein. 1533. Now at the National Gallery, London. Court Portraiture. So this is a very famous image. In 1529, Holbein went to London to escape the iconoclastic riots in Basel. 
and he'd been to London three years before on the advice of Erasmus, when he'd worked for Thomas More. But a lot had happened in those three years, and for the second visit he had to find more patrons, since several of those who had adopted him on his first visit had since fallen out of favour, including More himself. And Henry VIII had discovered the propaganda uses of art. And you know the picture of Henry with his parents and his recently deceased wife, Jane Seymour. And he's shown standing full square and his feet apart and a perfect image of immovable solidity. And his poor dad seems to sort of hover around in the background, doesn't he? (laughs) Looking wan and sort of clutching (laughs) his robe around him as if he's cold and... Oh, man, it was the first instance we saw that Henry was going to be a problem. Yes, I think so. And also, Henry VIII was collecting art to rival his arch-enemy in this testosterone battle, Francis I of France. And he had a large collection of stuff, including, because he managed to talk Leonardo da Vinci into going to France, as we will see. In 1536, Holbein became Henry's court painter, but he was not just a painter. He designed over 200 items of metalwork, including a suit of armour. He designed architectural features for Henry's Nonsuch Palace. Oh, I didn't know that. No, you were expected to multitask in those days, weren't you? I mean, you, yeah. you couldn't just say, well, I just do art. Yeah. And he was sent abroad to paint pictures of potential spouses, which is what got Thomas Cromwell into so much trouble. Yes. But I've chosen to look at the ambassadors. It was painted in 1533 which, to put it in context, was the year that Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn. And it's a portrait of two friends. And on the left, you've got Jean de Dantville, the French ambassador to Henry's court. Okay. And he didn't want to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, does anybody want to be in England? We don't really hear about them. He wanted to be home in France. He he kept getting malaria. He hated the weather here. And he hated the fact that he had to stay longer than he intended because he had to attend the coronation of Anne. Right. Which, he complained, cost him a lot of money as he had to buy new clothes for himself and his entourage and throw a banquet. And then he had to hang around and wait for the birth of Anne's baby. Right. Which was almost certainly going to be a boy. And then he was the godfather to what turned out to be Elizabeth. Yep. The boy without a wrinkle. Mm. But if you look at his sleeves, you can see that the slashings are held together by little gold, what only can be described as aglets, I aglets. would say. yes, <laughs> yes. And on the right, Georges de Selve, Bishop of Lavour, despite the fact he was only 25. And in fact, it might explain why he's not portrayed in Bishop's Regalia, because he was too young to be consecrated, ah. even though he was still made bishop. Okay. Hmm. So he's shown wearing a fur-lined full-length robe, so maybe he felt the cold. And it looks like quite a sober outfit, but it would have been extremely expensive, wouldn't it? Yes. And he, was, yeah, he wasn't in London long. He was just visiting his friend Danteville. Although that might have been a front. It's thought that he was bringing a message from King Francis to Henry VIII about Henry's break with Rome. What's interesting about this painting, apart from the whacking great skull in the middle, which we'll come to later. Yes, that's <laughs> so distorted. Are the artefacts they chose to be painted with. Because mm-hmm. the objects on the top shelf are to do with the heavens, and the okay. bottom shelf have to do with things of the earth. Ah. Holbein may have been pointing it out because he put an astronomical sphere on the top shelf and a globe of the earth on the bottom one. Yes. And it's got Dan Teville's chateau right in the middle. Of the, <laughs> they've turned they've turned the globe just so that where he really wanted to be ah. was right in the middle. 
And there are books, including a music book and a lute with a broken string. Now, okay, and there's an upside-down lute on the floor. I'm not sure about that one. But no one's quite sure why it's got a broken string, except maybe it's a reference to a lack of harmony. Because there are also uh. some flutes or recorders, but one is missing. Oh. So that might have the same meaning. Okay. I mean, it's obvious that people have looked at this thing really closely, because I've got... I've got a load of recorders, and I would I didn't notice one was missing. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a Lutheran hymn book, which may uh. indicate DeSalle's interest in bringing together the two halves of Christi, uh, Christi, Christi, Christendom. Christendom. <laughs> <laughs> he had spoken on this subject at one of the diets called by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So he was quite keen that, that Catholics and Protestants should just get along. Yes. Well, that didn't go down well, did it? No. Then there are dividers, set squares, and other instruments for calculation and navigation. There's a book of arithmetic propped open on a page about division, which may be okay. another reference to the schism in the church. Ah. Yes. So what's the purpose of all this stuff? And it may be referring to the liberal arts, showing that these men were educated in fields other than just religion. Okay. Uh, and they may have been references to religious battles that were going on. Both men were Catholics, but both of them wanted to reform the church. Right, the elephant in the room is the giant skull right right to the fore on the painting. Don't you have to look at it at a different angle in order for it to come into view? I think there's a little mark on the floor in front of ah. it, in front of the painting, to show you exactly where to stand. Yeah. But we're used, we're used to the idea of it being a skull, and we see it automatically. Yes. But apparently people puzzled over this for decades. I mean, you can't not see the skull now, can you? Because you know that's no. what it is. And in, yeah. 19, in the 19th century, a Holbein expert thought it was a cuttlefish bone. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. To be fair to that person, the painting has been cleaned up a lot since then. So yeah. it was a lot murkier. But I mean, if you didn't know that it was a skull and you stood in the right spot to see that it was a skull, it would be confusing. It looks like an error. Mm. But it's quite a popular thing in those days. It's, it's for artists to show their prowess. Right. Quite a few people did it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think Leonardo was interested in it, but he didn't actually do do one. Or if he did, it doesn't doesn't last. If you say, why a skull? If you look at, carefully at Danteville's hat, he's wearing a hat badge with a skull on it. And it appears to be his emblem, you know, a bit like a Nazi stormtrooper. Yeah. He's got a little skull. One thing we have learnt in this is they were a funny lot in those days, weren't they? And they did like yes. they did like their memento mori. Yeah. That's all that can be said about that, really. There's, I don't know whether that was Holbein saying, I tell you what you want, you want a distorted skull in your picture, or whether it was them saying they wanted it. I don't know. Yes, it's the most famous of its type, but it wasn't the only one. Hmm. Number 10, The Peasant Wedding by Pieter Bruegel the Elder, 1567 now at the Kunsthistorisches Museum, Vienna. The peasantry depicted without mockery. And this is a lovely picture, I think. Yeah, it is. Bruegel wasn't the first to depict peasant culture. I mean, there's a bloke called Siebold Beham, or Bayham, when he wasn't creating pornographic wallpaper. He made a print called the Large Village Fair. Now, peasants are always depicted as being short and dumpy. Bayham satirises the peasants, making them into figures of fun in drawings that were meant for the elite. And possibly, given that the revolt was in the air, this mockery was tinged with uh, fear 
Right. So they were sort of laughing to cover their sense of unease. But Bruegel's yeah. wedding feast just shows peasants enjoying themselves. There's a couple of bagpipe players, food. Apparently that's rice porridge with saffron that they're eating. Ooh, expensive. Yeah, I would have thought saffron? so. Yeah, it's a wedding feast. Maybe they're pushing the boat out. Oh, yes. Yeah. And there are a few richer people there, which apparently was quite common in a peasant's wedding that the, the higher up people would be invited right. and they'd deign to join. Yeah, there's um, drinks are being organised. Looks like cider. Looks very nice. People are chatting, eating, drinking. They're generally having yeah. a pleasant time. There's a little kid looking up whatever was left on the plate. Yeah. The I mean, there's no drunkenness. There's no thievery. There's no lascivious behaviour. There's nothing, no. nothing to laugh at at all. And Borigal isn't holding these people up to be laughed at. Not at all. Hmm. I mean, there's, no, there's not a lot of symbolism in this picture, but you just made a nice change. That yeah, there is a dog. There's a dog. Oh, what, um, faithfulness or I don't know. Oh, right now it looks like it's scavenging here. I'll show you right there. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's getting some of the crumbs off of the bench. That looks like my daughter's dog. He'd be standing under the table waiting for crumbs as well. <laughs> You can see how many cups they have in the basket, and I'm assuming is that cider or wine that he's pouring? Because I, th- I think it looks like jobs. cider, and I think from what I remember, because we're we're talking about well, we're talking about Northern Europe, so it probably would be cider, sort of Normandy. Okay. Normandy was a big cider area, wasn't it? And yeah. I'm surprised there's children in this picture. Well, it's a wedding feast, so I suppose everybody's there. Yeah, but for some reason in my head, children wouldn't be. I don't know why I thought that. But... What well, are they? I don't think there's any children sitting at the... T- oh, no, there is one. Unless it's a very small person. There's mm. a child in the, the middle. red hat, yeah. Yeah, and then there's a baby over here. Mm-hmm. And then there's the child on the floor. It just looking... seemed to be one of the sort of nice things where the whole village has got together to yeah. celebrate something. Do we know what these sheaves are on the wall? Maybe it's a sign of plenty, a good harvest. Fertility, Yeah. yeah. The picture was owned by Antwerp's Master of the Mint and it hung in his dining room. It's very pleasant. Very I nice. like this one. Yes. I thought we'd end on a something where people weren't being sawn in half and shoved through a mincer. Yes. <laughs> We're just having a nice time. It reminds me of our, we used to have harvest supper in this village. We don't have it anymore. It's fizzled out. Aww. But it used to be an extremely drunken affair and people would bid... <laughs> massive amounts for <laughs> vegetables and used to do very well out of it but it was like, it was like that you know the whole village sitting yeah. at big tables it was nice yeah i love how the seating in here is is looks like it was homemade because mm. they didn't strip the bark off of that bench chair and it looks like the rough side of the wood is used at the edging just like what's it's in vogue right now yeah is unfinished edged and the, the tray thing that they're carrying. All it looks the like a door. Thing. I think it probably it's, is. It's a okay because it's got a shed, <laughs> shed door that's just been brought into tractors. <laughs> awesome. A big shelf, yeah. And there's a sort of pew thing at the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's just having a really nice time. Yes. Which is a nice way to end because that concludes our journey through time, although not space, since we've been in pretty much the same geographical area. Yes. The art ennobled the. Burgundian court and the court enabled innovations in the arts. So, yeah. either directly by commissioning artworks or indirectly by making the cities of the Low Countries wealthy enough to be able to commission the art themselves. Yeah. So, when they were not being dragged into war by Charles the Bold and Maximilian, this is what they were up to. 
<laughs> having a generally good time. Well done, mm-hmm. Philip. You did something right. I love how you can see when we're talking about fashion, this particular one shows fashions that are past in the finer clothes that they're wearing. So you know that it was passed down. Mm. So and it's their best. They've bought it out for the wedding. Yeah. It's not what they're going to work in. It's a lot of white, actually, isn't there? There is a lot of white, but that mm. would, that's not unusual because they would have used wool that was unbleached. It's very white. It's not off-white, is it? It's obviously no, it scrubbed and scrubbed. White. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, the variety of clothing is is huge here where you don't see that in other paintings because the rich people were always wearing the very latest and greatest. Mm. Whereas a lot of this would have been passed down, bought at pawn shops. Really neat. And you can see people are chatting. Mm. The, the, the way the body language just looks... Cozy and comfortable and happy. Yeah. yeah. Rather than the stiff formality of the merchant and his wife. Yes, I know where I'd rather be. Yes. I'm Eating not sure food. about this porridge with saffron, but... Yeah. <laughs> I like I like cider, so there we go. Because <laughs> we live in a cider area, so... Yep. No, Very... I'm going there. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Mm. So that's it. That was lovely. Uh, If you are Googling some of these images, you might want to take a look at, it's called smarthistory.org. It brings up the paintings. And as you can see, as I scroll through this one, Lucy, it then zooms in on them and does a bit more of an explanation of what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Mm. And will give some of that symbolism that she was saying, but it gives it in, in quite a bit of detail. So yeah, that's smarthistory.org. You really do need to get right up close to these things, which you just yeah, don't get there's... in a cut and, paint, a cut and paste pictures. <laughs> yeah, that ambassador's portrait. I didn't realize there's an actual song and you can play it. Mm. On one of those books, it's opened up, and you can play that, and it has the lyrics. Apparently, you can read those lyrics, and it's a Protestant psalm. Well, that's another interesting thing, isn't it, that uh, they should have gone for a Protestant one? Yes. Very strange. Mm. Especially since both people in there are Catholics. I wonder if they realized what was being put (laughs) into the painting. (laughs) Well, do you think think they had no idea what Holbein was up to? (laughs) I don't know, but the detail in the wood, like it even shows that this this joinery is yeah, broken. It's not quite, not quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the fur on his, yes. his I don't know if that's his elbow. It's hard to tell from here, but that's the bottom of his of his shirt sleeve mm. up there. Oh no, it's the bottom of his cape. Yeah, yeah, really nice. But they were both apparently very interested in reconciling the two parts of the church. So I guess they did know what he was up to. Yes. Anyway, we've come a long way from lots and lots of gold and bling and angels and sapphires. Yeah. To actual depictions of people that are recognisable. That's mm. something. Yeah. That's a huge jump. Yes, because we, we in England, we've just seen lots of people with sort of half smiles. They all look the same. Yeah. They've all got the same hair. <laughs> got. I mean, you can't tell whether you're looking at Henry VI or um, who else had... Oh, Jasper. He looked very similar, didn't he? Yes, he did. So this floor still exists. Mm. So it's the Cosmati Paving in Westminster Abbey. And that's what they're, he used for the floor. Mm. How neat. Mm. Yeah, it's a great website. It's an absolutely fantastic website. It's not just a single image with a little blurb. 
You do feel that it must have been quite murky, that, that picture, not to have recognised a skull. A skull. But we don't know when it got cleaned. Maybe it's one of these things where you can only see it once you know. Yeah. And then you can't can't not see it. Yeah, this is a Turkish carpet. Mm. He was he knew what he was doing, didn't he, Holbein? Yes, he did. Yes. A beautiful boot. Quite similar to the one we've still got hanging up that hasn't got its strings on yet. That we bought <laughs> we bought with great enthusiasm when we first started doing the podcast. Yeah, this is just it's fantastic. So yeah, it does a lot of the Tudor stuff. Okay. That is the end of our episode on the Northern Renaissance. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Michael N. Gough and Thomas Flamenck for the Cornish Rebellion. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on... We don't do a Shakespeare thing for no. this. We just go. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye.